This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics, as well as pediatric pelvic fractures and tibial shaft fractures, which are three topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics. And the first question reads, what is the most important stabilizing mechanism in the mid-range motion of the glenohumeral joint? And the choices are one, concavity compression, two, isometric articular ligaments, three, increased tensile force on the capsule, four, biceps tendon, and five, deltoid contraction. So concavity compression is a stabilizing mechanism by which muscular compression of the humeral head into the glenoid fossa stabilizes the glenohumeral joint against shear forces. This is dependent on the depth of the concavity and the magnitude of the compressive force. So the correct answer to this question is one, concavity compression is the most important stabilizing mechanism in the mid-range motion of the glenohumeral joint. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is considered a potential advantage of arthroscopic repair for anterior instability of the shoulder? And the choices are one, decreased healing time at the glenoid labral junction, two, completion of the procedure on an outpatient basis, three, faster return to play than with open procedures, four, preservation of external rotation, and five, decreased risk of recurrent instability in comparison to open repair. So arthroscopic anterior labral repair spares the subscapularis and does not require significant mobilization or incision of the anterior capsule. Therefore, it is less likely to result in significant impairment in external rotation of the glenohumeral joint when compared with traditional open stabilization procedures. Recurrent instability rates are either slightly higher or equivalent to open procedures. Both procedures can be performed on an outpatient basis and require generally identical recovery times. So the correct answer to this question is four, preservation of external rotation. Moving on to the next question, a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament and absent anterosuperior labrum complex can be a normal anatomic capsulolabral variant. If this normal variation is repaired during arthroscopy, it will cause, and the choices are one, anterior translation of the humeral head, two, loss of external rotation, three, excessive tightening of the biceps tendon, four, superior migration of the humeral head, and five, no excessive changes. So this question is referring to a Buford complex, and if the Buford complex is mistakenly reattached to the neck of the glenoid, severe painful restriction of external rotation will occur, and so the correct answer to this question is two, loss of external rotation. Moving on to the next question, with the arm abducted 90 degrees and fully externally rotated, which of the following glenohumeral ligaments resists anterior translation of the humerus? And the choices are one, coracohumeral ligament, two, superior glenohumeral ligament, three, middle glenohumeral ligament, four, anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex, and five, posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. So with the arm in the abducted, externally rotated position, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex moves anteriorly, preventing anterior humeral head translation. Both the coracohumeral ligament and the superior glenohumeral ligament restrain the humeral head to inferior translation of the adducted arm and to external rotation in the adducted position. The middle glenohumeral ligament is a primary stabilizer to anterior translation with the arm abducted to 45 degrees. The posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex resists posterior translation of the humeral head when the arm is internally rotated. But the correct answer to this question is four, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex resists anterior translation of the humerus with the arm abducted 90 degrees and fully externally rotated. Moving on to the next question, which structure provides dynamic glenohumeral stability by compressing the humeral head against the glenoid? And the choices are one, superior glenohumeral ligament, two, middle glenohumeral ligament, three, teres major muscle, four, the deltoid muscle, and five, the rotator cuff muscles. So the rotator cuff is the main dynamic stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint, making five the correct answer to this question. The rotator cuff functions most at mid-range motion, not at the extremes of range of motion. The superior glenohumeral ligament is a static stabilizer and resists inferior translation at zero degrees of abduction. 
The middle glenohumeral ligament is a static stabilizer and resists anterior translation in the mid-range of abduction, approximately 45 degrees in external rotation. The teres major adducts and medially rotates the arm and is not a significant stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint. The deltoid muscle primarily abducts the arm and is not the major stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint. Moving on to the next question, the superior glenohumeral ligament is under the greatest stress when the humeral head and arm are in which of the following positions? And the choices are 1. Anteriorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and externally rotated. 2. Inferiorly translated with the arm in 5 degrees of adduction. 3. Anteriorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and internally rotated. 4. Inferiorly translated with the arm in 45 degrees of abduction and internal rotation. And 5. Inferiorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and neutral rotation. So the role of each glenohumeral ligament has been clearly defined by previous cadaveric studies that have sectioned different ligaments during different periods of stress on the glenohumeral joint. These studies have demonstrated that the superior glenohumeral ligament provides the most restraint to the shoulder joint when the arm is at zero degrees of abduction or an adduction and pulled inferiorly. So the correct answer to this question is two, the superior glenohumeral ligament is under the greatest stress when the humeral head and arm are inferiorly translated with the arm in five degrees of adduction. Warner et al. tested 11 cadavers with varying amounts of abduction and rotation to see what ligaments provided specific directional stability to the shoulder joint. They found that the anterior and posterior bands of the inferior glenohumeral ligament provided the most restraint when the arm was abducted. In addition, they found the superior glenohumeral ligament provided the most restraint when the arm was at zero degrees of abduction and pulled inferiorly. Moving on to the next question, Besides the biceps tendon, which of the following structures also pass through the rotator interval? And the choices are 1. The coracohumeral ligament only, 2. The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments, 3. The coracohumeral superior and middle glenohumeral ligaments, 4. The superior and middle glenohumeral ligaments, and 5. The superior glenohumeral ligament only. So the rotator cuff is perforated anterosuperiorly by the coracoid process, which separates the anterior border of the supraspinatus tendon from the superior border of the subscapularis tendon, creating the triangular rotator interval, which is bridged by capsule. The base of the interval is the coracoid process, from which capsular tissue, or the coracohumeral ligament, originates. The transverse humeral ligament at the biceps intertubercular sulcus forms the apex of the rotator interval. The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments are considered to be structural contents of the rotator interval capsule, but each have separate origins and insertions. These ligaments are considered to be the most constant structures of the fibrous joint capsule. R.A. et al. performed cadaver dissections to describe the anatomy as it relates to reconstructing the bicep sling as it exits the interval in cases of bicep subluxation. They note that an intact superior border of subscapularis is needed as well as tension in the superior glenohumeral ligament. Yang et al. reported a descriptive anatomy study on the coracohumeral ligament. All were located in the rotator interval, originated from the lateral aspect of the base of the coracoid process, and had histology more consistent with capsule than ligament. So again, the correct answer to this question is 2. The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments also pass through the rotator interval along with the biceps tendon. And moving on to the final question, which of the following is considered the primary static restraint to anterior glenohumeral translation with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction? And the choices are 1. Shape of the bony articulation. 2. Negative intraarticular pressure. 3. Superior glenohumeral ligament complex. 4. Middle glenohumeral ligament complex and five, inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. So the geometry of the bony articulation is inherently unstable. The rotator cuff is a dynamic stabilizer and capsule labral tissues are considered static stabilizers as we previously discussed. With the arm at 90 degrees of abduction, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex is the primary static stabilizer to anterior translation. The middle glenohumeral ligament resists anterior translation at 45 degrees of abduction. The superior glenohumeral ligament resists inferior translation with the arm at one side. O'Brien et al. 
described the functional anatomy of the inferior glenohumeral complex based on a series of cadaveric dissections. They note that its orientation and design support the functional concept of this single structure as an important anterior and posterior stabilizer of the shoulder joint. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Inferior glenohumeral ligament complex is considered the primary static restraint to anterior glenohumeral translation with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction. Moving on to the next topic of pediatric pelvic fractures, the first question reads, A 14-year-old boy presents with right groin pain, which occurred during soccer practice. He reports hearing a snap and immediate pain. On physical exam, he has pain over the right hip with resisted knee extension. The radiograph reveals an avulsion fracture at the anterior inferior iliac spine, otherwise known as the AIIS. Which muscle origin is at the site of injury? And the choices are 1. Sartorius, 2. Long head of the biceps femoris, 3. The gluteus minimus, 4. The iliopsoas, and 5. The rectus femoris. So the anterior inferior iliac spine is the origin of the rectus femoris, making the correct answer 5. Rectus femoris. Isolated apophyseal avulsion fractures are common, especially in athletes participating in soccer and gymnastics. Pain at the hip with resisted knee extension is indicative of the rectus femoris origin. Rossi et al. reviewed 203 pelvic avulsion fractures in 198 patients in competitive athletes. Pelvic avulsion fractures most commonly occurred at the ischial tuberosity, followed by the AIIS. Soccer players and gymnasts were the most commonly injured. Reina et al. reports a case report on twins who suffered identical rectus femoris avulsion fractures at the level of the AIIS within one year of one another. Both healed with conservative treatment. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, sartorius is incorrect as it originates at the anterior superior iliac spine. Answer 2, the long head of the biceps is incorrect as it originates at the posterior ischial tuberosity. Answer 3 is incorrect, as the gluteus minimus origin is at the dorsal origin of the iliac wing along the inferior edge of the gluteal lines. And answer 4 is incorrect, as the iliopsoas origin is the confluence of the iliacus and the psoas, which originate within the iliac fossa and the transverse process of the L1 to L5 vertebrae. And moving on to the final question of this topic, a 6-year-old boy is hit by a car while crossing the street. He is intubated at the scene. A radiograph of his pelvis shows a type 4 disruption of the anterior and posterior pelvic ring, or a symphyseal and right SI joint diastasis. He is hemodynamically stable and has no genitourinary injuries. CT scan of his abdomen and pelvis confirms symphyseal diastasis measuring 1.2 centimeters and a right sacroiliac joint diastasis measuring 0.7 centimeters. What is the most appropriate next step in management? And the choices are 1 bed rest followed by progressive mobilization, two, bedside reduction using an external fixator, three, temporary pelvic binder placement followed by delayed external fixation, four, elective anterior symphyseal pinning and posterior sacroiliac screw placement, and five, elective anterior symphyseal plating and posterior sacroiliac plating. So this child has an open book injury to the pelvic ring resulting in anterior and posterior pelvic ring disruption, which is a stable that is less than 2 cm displacement to Rhodes-Zieg type 4 injury. Treatment for this type of injury is non-operative. If the displacement were greater than 2 cm, close reduction would be necessary. Children sustain less severe pelvic fractures and more single bone fractures because of greater bone plasticity, thicker cartilage, and increased elasticity of the symphysis pubis and SI joints. High energy mechanisms are necessary to cause fractures. Hemorrhage is rare because of the ability of children's smaller vessels to vasoconstrict more readily than atherosclerotic adult vessels. Prognosis is better than in adults, and there are fewer long-term complications. Death is usually because of concomitant serious injuries. Banerjee et al. reviewed 44 pediatric pelvic fractures presenting over 10 years. They found that the most common mechanism was pedestrian hit by a car. In their cohort, only four fractures were unstable and only one fracture required surgery with an external fixation for an unstable open book injury. Holden et al. reviewed pediatric pelvic fractures. They recommend that types 1 and 2 fractures be treated with protected weight-bearing and type 3 fractures be treated with weight-bearing as tolerated. 
They also recommend that acetabular extension be treated with non-weight bearing and or spica casting and stable type 4 fractures be treated with bed rest and or spica casting. So again, the correct answer to this question is one, bed rest followed by progressive mobilization. And moving on to the final topic of tibial shaft fractures, the first question reads, what is the most common type of malalignment after intramedullary nailing of a distal one-third extraarticular tibia fracture using an infrapatellar approach when compared with plating? And the choices are 1. Varus, 2. Valgus, 3. Translational, 4. Shortening, and 5. Apex anterior. So the most common type of malalignment after intramedullary nailing of a distal one-third extraarticular tibia fracture using an infrapatellar approach when compared with plating is valgus malalignment, making the correct answer two. Fixation of distal one-third tibial shaft fractures can be successfully treated with either intramedullary nailing or plating. The literature describes advantages and disadvantages to both approaches. However, intramedullary nailing has been shown to lead to increased rates of valgus malunion. Recent studies have shown that using a suprapatellar approach may decrease the incidence of valgus malalignment. Vallier et al. performed a randomized prospective study to compare plate and nail stabilization for distal tibia shaft fractures by assessing complications and secondary procedures. 104 patients were randomized to either reamed intramedullary nailing or medial distal tibia plate fixation. Primary angular malalignment was identified in 17 patients, or 16.3%. This included 4 patients treated with tibial plating, or 8.3%, and 13 patients treated with nails, or 23%, with a p-value of 0.02. 8 of these, or 7.7% of all patients, had malalignment between 6 degrees and 10 degrees of angulation. Valgus was the most common angular deformity, accounting for 70% of angular deformity cases. Avalucia et al. looked at the immediate postoperative alignment of distal tibia fractures within 5 centimeters of the tibial plafond, treated with suprapatellar intramedullary nail insertion compared with the infrapatellar technique. They found primary angular malalignment of greater than or equal to 5 degrees occurred in 35 or 26.1% of patients with infrapatellar intramedullary nail insertion and in 5 or 3.8% of patients who underwent suprapatellar intramedullary nail insertion. They conclude suprapatellar intramedullary nailing technique results in a significantly lower rate of malalignment compared with the infrapatellar intramedullary nail technique. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is an FDA-approved adjunctive treatment for an acute open tibia fracture being treated with an intramedullary nail? And the choices are 1. Calcitonin, 2. RHBMP2, 3. RHBMP7, 4. Teriparatide, and 5. Bisphosphonates. So RHBMP2 has FDA approval for use when treating acute open tibia fractures with an intramedullary nail making two the correct answer to this question. Open tibial shaft fractures can present many treatment challenges. Although its use remains somewhat controversial, RHBMP2 has been shown to have many positive effects when used to treat acute open tibia fractures. These benefits include accelerated early fracture healing, decreased rates of hardware failure, decreased need for subsequent bone grafting procedures, and decreased infection rates. RHBMP2 does have FDA approval specifically for use in open tibia fractures being treated with an intramedullary nail. ALT et al. present a comparison of patients with grade 3 open tibia fractures treated with unreamed nails with or without RHBMP2. They found significant decreases in need for secondary interventions such as bone grafting or nail exchange. Mean time to fracture healing was less in the RHBMP2 group, but this difference was not statistically significant. Govender et al. present a prospective randomized study of 450 patients with open tibia fractures treated with an intramedullary nail with or without RHBMP2. They found statistically significant decreases in the need for secondary intervention, hardware failure, and infection, as well as faster wound healing and faster time to fracture union. Way et al. provide a meta-analysis regarding use of RHBMP2 in open tibia fractures. Due to decreased rates of secondary interventions, they estimated a net savings of $6,000 per case when RHBMP2 was used. They found no significant difference in rates of infection, postoperative pain, hardware failure, or fracture healing at 20 weeks. Moving on to the next question, 
which of the following factors has been shown in a clinical trial to be equivalent to autologous bone graft for treatment of tibial nonunions that were treated with intramedullary nailing? And the choices are 1, BMP4, 2, BMP7, 3, BMP10, 4, demineralized bone matrix, and 5, cancellous bone allograft chips. So osteogenic protein 1, or OP1, which is also known as BMP7, has been evaluated in a randomized prospective multi-institution study of tibial nonunions. Between 5 to 10% of tibial shaft fractures progress to nonunion, causing substantial disability. Bone autographs, along with internal fixation, are the usual treatment for these failures, but the morbidity associated with autogenous tissues remain problematic. Bone morphogenic proteins are currently available for clinical use and preclinical models, and an increasing number of patients treated with these molecules demonstrate their safety and efficacy. Friedlander et al. studied BMP7 in a randomized prospective multi-institution study of tibial nonunions. Clinical and radiographic outcomes were statistically indistinguishable at nine months following treatment, and OP1 avoided donor site morbidity. Swiankowski et al. performed a level 1 study of patients with acute open tibial fractures randomized to treatment with or without RHBMP2. Interestingly, in their subgroup analysis, the authors found no significant difference between the two groups when patients were treated with reamed intramedullary nailing. It should be noted, however, that there is more recent evidence supporting the use of BMP2 in the treatment of tibial nonunions, and this may change the focus of boards and OITE questions in the future. Moving on to the next question, which of the following types of nonunions is most likely to achieve union following a reamed exchange intramedullary nailing only? And the choices are 1. Distal femoral nonunion with less than 10% bone loss, 2. Infected nonunion of the femoral shaft, 3. Mid-diaphyseal humeral nonunion with less than 10% bone width loss, 4. Proximal humeral shaft nonunion with less than 10% bone width loss, and 5. Diaphyseal tibial shaft nonunion with less than 30% cortical width bone loss. So reamed exchanged intramedullary nailing of diaphyseal tibial shaft fractures in which there is less than 30% of cortical bone loss can achieve union rates ranging between 76 to 96%. In a review article, Brinker et al. discusses the indications and limitations of exchange nailing of ununited fractures. Biological as well as mechanical factors contribute to the healing of nonunions. Anatomically, multiple studies cited in this review article demonstrate that distal femoral nonunions do not readily achieve union following exchange nailing. Humerus nonunions, both diaphyseal and proximal locations, more readily achieve union with plate fixation and bone grafting, according to the article cited in this review as well. Benaskowitz et al. also discusses the difficulties with exchange nailing of femoral nonunions with a large percentage of patients requiring additional surgeries to achieve union. Templeman et al. discusses the successful results of reamed exchange intramedullary nailing of delayed union and nonunion of the tibial shaft. The authors recommend the use of bone graft only when there is substantial bone loss, usually exceeding 30% of the cortical diameter. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Diaphyseal tibial shaft nonunion with less than 30% cortical width bone loss is most likely to achieve union following a reamed exchange intramedullary nailing only. Moving on to the next question. In each of the following scenarios, atrophic fracture nonunion occurred after initial treatment with intramedullary nail fixation. Which scenario has been shown to have the highest rate of osseous union if treated with exchange intramedullary nailing? And the choices are 1 oligotrophic nonunion of a comminuted humeral shaft fracture, 2. oligotrophic nonunion of a transverse humeral shaft fracture, 3. oligotrophic nonunion of an oblique distal femur fracture, 4. oligotrophic nonunion of a comminuted tibial shaft fracture, and 5. oligotrophic nonunion of an oblique tibial shaft fracture. So reamed exchange nailing is recommended for the management of aseptic nonunions of non-comminuted tibial shaft fractures. Union rates have been reported between 76 to 96% in large studies. Tibial exchange nailing promotes osseous bone healing of non-unions by providing biological and mechanical support. The biological support is provided by reaming the medullary canal. This increases periosteal blood flow and stimulates periosteal new bone formation. The mechanical support is provided by a larger diameter intramedullary nail, which increases the rigidity and strength of the nail. 
Brinker et al. reviewed the concept of exchange nailing of non-united long bone fractures. They showed that exchange nailing is the most successful in the treatment of non-unions following closed or open fractures without substantial bone loss. Aseptic, non-comminuted diaphyseal femoral and tibial shaft fractures showed the highest rates of union with exchange nailing, which were found to be 76 to 100 percent and 72 to 96 percent respectively. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Oligotrophic non-union of an oblique tibial shaft fracture has been shown to have the highest rate of osseous union if treated with exchange intramedullary nailing. Moving on to the next question, a 33-year-old male patient presents with a comminuted open tibia fracture after involvement in a motor vehicle crash. He has a history of smoking but is otherwise healthy. He's given antibiotics and taken immediately for irrigation and debridement followed by an unreamed stainless steel intramedullary nail. Due to bone loss, there is a non-circumferential cortical defect measuring 12 millimeters at the fracture site. All of the following in this patient's history and presentation increase his risk for adverse outcome except, and the choices are 1. High energy mechanism of the injury, 2. Use of an unreamed nail, 3. Implant material, 4. Fracture gap, and 5. History of smoking. So of the factors listed, only the use of an unreamed intramedullary nail for an open tibia fracture has not been shown to increase the risk of adverse outcomes or the need for reoperation. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Use of an unreamed nail. The treatment of open tibia fractures with intramedullary nailing can be complicated by many factors. High energy mechanism of the injury, use of a stainless steel nail, residual fracture gap greater than 1 centimeter, and a history of smoking have all been shown to increase the risk of adverse outcomes. The use of reamed and unreamed nails for open tibia fractures have been studied, and no significant difference in outcome has been found. Shemich et al. present data from a prospective randomized trial of tibia fractures treated with reamed or unreamed intramedullary nails. They found no difference in risk of adverse outcome between reamed and unreamed nails in open tibia fractures. They did, however, find an increased risk of adverse outcomes in high-energy mechanisms, use of stainless steel versus titanium, and a residual fracture gap of greater than 1 centimeter. They comment that their data did not show a significant increase in risk due to history of smoking, but cite other studies that have demonstrated such a relationship. Bandari et al. present data from a prospective randomized study of patients with tibia fractures randomized to reamed or unreamed tibial nails. For closed fractures, they found a lower rate of primary events, most commonly the need for dynamization. For closed fractures, they found a lower rate of primary events in the reamed group. However, they found no difference in outcomes for either technique in open fractures. Moving on to the next question. A 27-year-old male was struck by a taxicab and sustained comminuted right distal third tibia and fibula fractures. Treatment consisted of placement of an intramedullary nail in the tibia the following morning. At his six-month follow-up, he has clawing of all five toes. Examination reveals flexion deformities of the distal and proximal interphalangeal joints that are flexible with plantar flexion and rigid with dorsiflexion. Calluses are present on the dorsum and tip of the toes. Single heel rise is normal. He has a mild Aquinas contracture relative to the left leg that is not relieved with knee flexion. What is the most appropriate treatment option? And the choices are one, physical therapy and bracing, 2. Reassurance that the deformity will resolve with time. 3. Achilles tendon lengthening and release or retromalleolar lengthening of the flexor digitorum longus and flexor hallucis longus. 4. FDL and FHL tenotomies at the individual digits with transfer of the posterior tibial tendon to the dorsum of the foot. And 5. FDL and FHL tenotomies at the individual digits with midfoot capsular release and hallux interphalangeal fusion. This is an example of tethering of the flexor hallucis longus slash flexor digitorum longus to the fracture site. Additional time and or physical therapy and bracing would not be expected to be of benefit. Release of the FHL and FDL from the fracture site or retromalleolar lengthening will address the post-traumatic claw toe deformity and Achilles tendon lengthening will address the mild equinus. Posterior tibial tendon transfer is not appropriate as the patient demonstrates a normal heel rise. Midfoot releases and hallux fusion are also not indicated. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Achilles tendon lengthening and release or retromalleolar lengthening of the FDL and FHL. Moving on to the next question. A 28-year-old woman with a history of systemic lupus erythematous was involved in a motor vehicle crash. She sustained a closed left tibia fracture and underwent surgery. 
During surgery, the tourniquet was left inflated while the surgeon reamed the tibial canal to place the largest diameter nail that could be fit. At six weeks follow-up, there is evidence of massive bone necrosis. What event most likely led to the necrosis? And the choices are 1. History of steroid use. 2. History of systemic lupus erythematis. 3. Overreaming of the nail. 4. Reaming of the tibia with the tourniquet inflated. And 5. Reaming of the tibia with the knee in hyperflexion. So Karanakar and associates showed in a canine model that there is no significant difference in the heat generated during reaming with and without a tourniquet. The factor that made the most difference was related to the size of the reamer used compared with the diameter of the isthmus. Giannatis and associates performed a prospective randomized trial on 34 patients that evaluated the same thing as the first study with the same methodology, and the conclusions were again the same. The factor that generated the most heat was using large reamers, such as 11mm to 12mm, in a patient with a small isthmus, 8mm to 9mm. Systemic lupus erythematis, steroid use, and knee flexion during reaming have not been shown to be associated with diaphyseal necrosis after reamed tibial nailing. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is true regarding the center of rotation of angulation, or CORA, as it refers to tibial diaphyseal angular deformity? And the choices are 1. It is the point at which the proximal mechanical axis and the distal mechanical axis meet. 2. It is the point at which the proximal anatomical axis and proximal mechanical axis meet. 3. It is always the point on the cortex at the most concave portion of the deformity. 4. It is the point at which the distal anatomical axis and the distal mechanical axis meet. And 5. It is always the point on the cortex at the most convex portion of the deformity. So the center of rotation of angulation, or CORA, in diaphyseal tibial deformity is defined as the intersection of the proximal mechanical or anatomical axis and the distal mechanical or anatomical axis. So the correct answer to this question is 1. It is the point at which the proximal mechanical axis and the distal mechanical axis meet. Angular deformity of the femur or tibia involves angulation not only of the bone but also of its axes. When a bone is divided and angulated, the mechanical and anatomic axis of the bone are also divided into proximal and distal segments. The pairs of proximal and distal axis lines intersect to form an angle. The point at which the proximal and distal axis lines intersect is called the cora. The axis line of the proximal bone segment is called the PMA or PAA, and axis line of the distal segment is called the DMA or DAA. In the tibia, because the mechanical and anatomical axes are almost the same, the PMA and PAA lines overlap, as do the DMA and DAA lines. Moving on to the next question, a 27-year-old male presented to the trauma bay following a motor vehicle crash and was diagnosed with a comminuted open tibia fracture. He was subsequently treated with an irrigation and debridement and unreamed intramedullary nail. At four months follow-up, despite some signs of healing, the fracture is not fully united. Which of the following is true? And the choices are 1. Patient should be scheduled for exchange nailing. 2. Use of an unreamed nail increased this patient's risk of infection. 3. Use of an unreamed nail increased this patient's risk of non-union. 4. Patient should continue to be observed without intervention. And 5. Use of an unreamed nail decreased this patient's risk of infection. So tibia fractures open or closed when treated with an intramedullary nail can take six months or longer to achieve clinical and radiographic healing and should be observed for at least six months before secondary intervention is considered. So the correct answer to this question is four, patients should continue to be observed without intervention. Open tibia fractures should be managed with debridement and irrigation initially. The choice of definitive fixation between reamed and unreamed nailing remains controversial. Recent randomized controlled studies have examined the outcomes of reamed and unreamed nailing for both closed and open tibia shaft fractures. Bandari et al. present a prospective randomized study of patients with tibia fractures randomized to reamed or unreamed tibial nails. Surgeons participating in the study were mandated to delay intervention for delayed union slash non-union until six months after the initial procedure. The authors found that many tibia fractures in both the reamed and unreamed nailing groups progressed to union without secondary intervention with this six-month delay. Finkmeyer et al. present a prospective randomized trial of tibia fractures treated with reamed or unreamed intramedullary nails. For closed fractures, they found a higher rate of union at four months in the reamed group, but no difference at six or 12 months. There was no difference in union rates for open fractures at any time period. They found no difference in other variables such as infection or compartment syndrome. 
Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old male pedestrian sustained a type 2 open tibia fracture after being struck by a car at 10 p.m. He was transported to a level 1 trauma hospital where he was given intravenous antibiotics and tetanus at 10.45 p.m. He underwent irrigation and debridement of the wound with 9 liters of saline solution and was treated with reamed intramedullary nail fixation at 11.45 p.m. A vacuum-assisted dressing was placed over a 5 by 3 centimeter skin deficit. What part of his overall treatment has been shown to reduce the risk of infection the most at the site of the injury? And the choices are 1. Early tetanus administration, 2. Early intravenous antibiotic administration, 3. Reamed intramedullary nail fixation, 4. Irrigation and debridement of the open fracture with 9 liters of solution, and 5. Vacuum-assisted dressings over the skin deficit. So the most important factor shown to reduce the risk of infection at the site of an open fracture is early intravenous antibiotic administration. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Infection risk after Gastillo type 2 open fractures ranges from 10 to 20% in large studies. Antibiotic treatment initiated within 3 hours from the time of injury has been shown to significantly reduce the rate of infection. Antibiotic coverage for type 2 open fractures should cover gram-positive bacteria. Soil-contaminated wounds should include anaerobic coverage. The dose of antibiotic given must be within a therapeutic range and titrated to the patient's weight, for example, 2 grams of ANCEF for a patient greater than 70 kilograms. Duration of antibiotic therapy has been suggested to be between 1 and 3 days, although there is no agreement on a firm endpoint. Pollock et al. reviewed a large cohort of open fractures treated at level 1 trauma centers. They demonstrated a significant decrease in infection rate with either early direct admission, that is less than 2 hours, or transfer of less than 11 hours for only type 3 open tibia fractures. They did not discuss timing of antibiotic treatment because this was not prospectively collected. Although they did not collect data on antibiotic treatment, the authors theorized that early transfer potentially resulted in earlier administration of antibiotics. Padzakis et al. examined a series of 1,104 open fractures to determine the factors contributing to infection. They showed the most important factor in reducing the infection rate was the early administration of antibiotics. Moving on to the next question, which of the following non-unions is appropriately treated with exchanged reamed nailing without bone graft augmentation? And the choices are 1. Infected tibial shaft non-union 6-month status post intramedullary nail fixation, 2. Oligotrophic humeral shaft non-union 7-month status post non-operative management, 3. Hypertrophic tibial shaft non-union 7-month status post intramedullary nail fixation, 4. Comminuted open tibial shaft non-union with segmental bone loss, 8-month status post-intramedullary nail fixation, and 5. Supracondylar femoral shaft non-union, 6-month status post-intramedullary nail fixation with 4 distal locking screws. So exchange nailing is indicated for non-unions of diaphyseal femoral and tibia fractures in the absence of infection, comminution, or segmental bone loss. Hypertrophic non-unions need better stability, that is, with an increased nail diameter, to achieve union whereas atrophic nonunions often need better biology, like with a bone graft, flap coverage, etc. The article by Brinker et al. reviews the indications for exchange nailing. They argue on the basis of the available literature that exchange nailing is an excellent choice for aseptic nonunions of non-comminuted diaphyseal femoral and tibia fractures. Zell et al. demonstrated 95% success with reamed exchange nailing for the treatment of aseptic tibial shaft nonunions that were initially treated with non-reamed intramedullary nailing. Moving on to the next question. Percutaneous placement of a lateral proximal tibial locking plate that extends down to the distal third of the leg is associated with postoperative decreased sensation of which of the following distributions? And the choices are 1. Medial hind foot, 2. Lateral hind foot, 3. First dorsal web space, 4. Dorsal midfoot, and 5. The plantar foot. So placement of long lateral tibial plates have been shown to have a risk of iatrogenic injury to the superficial perineal nerve, which has a sensory distribution to the dorsal foot. The risk is seen especially with percutaneous approaches, such as those used with the list plate. But the correct answer to this question is 4. The dorsal midfoot is associated with postoperative decreased sensation from a percutaneous placement of a lateral proximal tibial locking plate that extends down to the distal third of the leg. The reference by DeAngelis et al. found a risk of superficial perineal injury with percutaneous screw placement of holes 11 to 13 in the list plate. 
The article by Roberts et al. noted a slightly increased distance to the neurovascular bundle when interlocking tibial nails in a lateral to medial direction compared to medial to lateral locking and slightly increased biomechanical strength when locking in a medial to lateral direction. The reference by Walensky et al. notes a risk of iatrogenic injury to the deep perineal nerve and anterior tibial artery with an anterior lateral approach to the distal tibia, but notes the superficial perineal nerve is safe with an appropriate exposure. Moving on to the next question. When discussing treatment options with a 35-year-old healthy male with an isolated closed tibial shaft fracture, the surgeon should inform him that in comparison to closed treatment, the advantages of intramedullary nail fixation include all of the following except and the choices are 1. Quicker time to union, 2. Decreased risk of malunion, 3. Decreased risk of compartment syndrome, 4. Decreased risk of shortening, and 5. Quicker return to work. So all of the answer choices are correct except for number 3, decreased risk of compartment syndrome, as intramedullary nailing can actually increase the risk of compartment syndrome. In a study of 94 tibial fractures, Finkmeyer reported 10, or 11%, had compartment syndromes three of the 10 patients developed the compartment syndrome postoperatively. In comparing intramedullary nailing to non-op, Bone et al. showed that intramedullary nailing had a shorter time to union, with a mean of 18 versus 26 weeks with a p-value of 0.02, lower non-union rates with 2% versus 10%, and a decreased incidence of shortening with 2% versus 27%, and a quicker return to work with a mean of 4 versus 6.5 months but no difference in compartment syndrome, with 0% in both groups. The classic article by Sarmiento et al. reported that closed treatment with use of a prefabricated functional below-the-knee brace was effective in a study of 1,000 closed diaphyseal fractures of the tibia, with an incidence of non-union of only 1.1%. However, those authors had very strict criteria for the use of the fracture brace, and exclusion criteria included intact fibula and tibial shortening of greater than 2 centimeters. Moving on to the next question, a 30-year-old man presents with a distal third tibia fracture that has healed in 25 degrees of varus alignment. The patient is at greatest risk of developing which of the following conditions as a result of this malunion. And the choices are 1, degenerative lumbar spine changes, 2, ipsilateral ankle pain and stiffness, 3, ipsilateral hip joint degenerative changes, 4, contralateral hip joint degenerative changes, and 5, ipsilateral medial degenerative changes. So a significant malunion of the distal tibia has important consequences for patient outcome, including pain, gait changes, and cosmesis. The article by Milner et al. looked at long-term outcomes of tibial malunions and noted that varus malunion led to increased ankle-slash-subtalar stiffness and pain regardless of the amount of radiographic degenerative changes. So the correct answer to this question is 2, ipsilateral ankle pain and stiffness. The article by Puno et al. reinforced the concept of decreased functional outcomes of the ankle with tibial malunions and noted that other lower extremity joints, ipsilateral and contralateral, do not have increased rates of degeneration from such a malunion. Moving on to the next question, a 56-year-old male sustains a type 3B open comminuted tibial shaft fracture distal to a well-fixed total knee arthroplasty that is definitively treated with a free flap and external fixation. Nine months after fixator removal, he presents with a painful oligotrophic nonunion. Laboratory workup for infection is negative. Passive knee range of motion is limited to 15 degrees. What is the most appropriate treatment for his nonunion? And the choices are 1. Knee manipulation under anesthesia. 2. Cast immobilization and use of a bone stimulator. 3. Unilateral external fixation. 4. Intramedullary nailing. And 5. Compression plating. So at nine months, observation is no longer an option as the fracture is not healing and is adjacent to an arthrofibrotic joint. Plate osteosynthesis has been shown to be an effective method of treatment for patients who have had an open fracture of the tibia that has failed to unite after external fixation and or immobilization in a cast. So the correct answer to this question is five, compression plating. Wiss et al. reported a series of 50 tibial nonunions with a similar clinical scenario. He reported that with compression plating, 92% of the non-unions healed without further intervention. In their study, 39 out of 50 patients had autogenous bone grafting in addition to compression plating. Moving on to the next question. Intramedullary nailing of proximal tibial shaft fractures are technically demanding, and use of an extended medial parapetellar incision with a semi-extended technique can prevent what common deformity at the fracture site. 
And the choices are one, valgus, two, varus, three, recurvatum, four, procurvatum, and five, rotational deformity. So valgus inflection is the most common deformity seen after intramedullary nailing of proximal tibia fractures. The semi-extended nailing position helps overcome the procurvatum or flexion deformity of the fracture. Lang et al. reported in their study of 32 proximal third tibia fractures that 56% of the fractures had 5 degrees or more valgus angulation and 28% had 10 degrees or more valgus angulation. Angulation in the AP plane ranged from 0 degrees to 20 degrees, all of which was apex anterior. 19 or 59% of the fractures demonstrated 5 degrees or more angulation and 7 or 22% of the fractures demonstrated 10 degrees or more angulation. Tornetta advocates use of extended medial parapetellar incision with the leg in a semi-extended position to allow for a more proximal and lateral starting point. This modified starting point forces the nail to overcome the tendency of the fracture to flex apex anterior and go into valgus. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Procurvatum is the deformity that can be avoided using an extended medial parapetellar incision with a semi-extended technique. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following tibial injuries is most commonly treated with a staged open reduction in internal fixation with free flap soft tissue reconstruction? And the choices are 1. Type 3B intraarticular distal tibia fracture, 2. Type 3B segmental midshaft tibia fracture, 3. Type 3B transverse midshaft tibia fracture, 4. Type 3B Schatzker 1 proximal tibia fracture, and 5. Type 3C Schatzker 4 proximal tibia fracture. So by definition, with type 3B injuries, there is exposed bone after debridement, which will require a local or a free flap for coverage. Distal third 3B tibial shaft fractures are unique in that they usually require a free flap or reverse sural rotational flap to obtain adequate coverage. As stated in skeletal trauma, quote, as local donor muscles in the distal third of the tibia are almost non-existent, closure of an open plafond fracture or any extensive type 3B injury in this area will usually require free tissue transfer. The primary options are latissimus dorsi or rectus abdominis for large defects and gracilis for smaller wounds, end quote. In addition to the flaps mentioned here, others, including fasciocutaneous flaps and radial forearm flaps, are also utilized with success in this area. Typically, treatment of type 3B tibial shaft fractures should be staged. Initially, tetanus prophylaxis, antibiotics with gram-negative and positive coverage, and application of an external fixator with repeat INDs are employed for immediate fracture care. Plating is usually required in the presence of significant intraarticular fracture involvement. Moving on to the next question, what percentage of patients will complain of knee pain at the time of union of a tibial shaft fracture treated with a reamed intramedullary nail? And the choices are 1, less than 10%, 2, 10 to 33%, 3, 33 to 50%, 4, 50 to 75%, and 5, greater than 75%. So anterior knee pain is the most common complication after intramedullary nailing of the tibia. Dissection of the patellar tendon and its sheath during transtendinous nailing was thought to be a contributing cause of chronic anterior knee pain. The paper by Tavanian et al. compared two different nail insertion techniques in 50 patients who were randomized to treatment with paratendinous or transtendinous nailing. 67% of the transtendinous and 71% of the paratendinous approaches resulted in patients with postoperative anterior knee pain. The same authors published an eight-year follow-up which showed that the percentage dropped down to 29%, but there was still no advantage of paratendinous over the transtendinous approach. In a more recent study by Lefevre with an average patient follow-up of 14 years, knee pain was present in greater than 70% of the respondents. So again, the correct answer to this question is 4, 50 to 75% of patients will complain of knee pain at the time of union of a tibial shaft fracture treated with a reamed intramedullary nail. Moving on to the next question. A 26-year-old man is involved in a high-speed motor vehicle accident. He sustains a grade 3B open tibia fracture. Examination reveals a large soft tissue defect and an insensate foot. What is an expected outcome in this scenario? And the choices are 1. Equal functional outcome when limb salvage is compared with amputation. 2. Worse functional outcome with limb salvage than with primary amputation. 3. Better functional outcome when amputation is compared with limb salvage. 4. Amputation within 6 months of injury. And 5. Permanent loss of plantar sensation. So the Lower Extremity Assessment Project, or LEAP, 
data have shown that absent plantar sensation is not an indication for primary amputation. When looking at a comparison between an insensate salvage group and a sensate salvage group at two years follow-up, both groups had an equal proportion, that is 55%, of normal plantar sensation, and functionally both groups were equivalent. Absent plantar sensation at initial evaluation is not prognostic for long-term plantar sensory status or functional outcome. So again, the correct answer to this question is one, equal functional outcome when limb salvage is compared with amputation. Moving on to the next question, when compared with reamed intramedullary nailing for an unstable diaphyseal tibia fracture, unreamed nailing is associated with which of the following? And the choices are one, longer surgical times, two, higher infection rates, three, lower functional outcome scores, four, similar union rates in open fractures, and five, higher incidence of pulmonary complications. So this is a concept that we discussed in previous questions, but according to the SPRINT study, which is a large randomized controlled trial that has shown a benefit of reamed intramedullary nailing versus unreamed intramedullary nailing for closed tibial shaft fractures with regard to reoperation rates. However, there is no such association that exists for open tibial fractures. For example, union rates are the same for open fractures, whether you're using a reamed or an unreamed nail. The infection rates are the same as is the functional outcome and surgical time is potentially shorter for an unreamed nail. The potential pulmonary benefits from an unreamed nailing have never been clinically proven. But the correct answer to this question is four. You have similar union rates in open fractures whether you're using a reamed or an unreamed nail. And the final question for this topic and this review session, when planning pin placement for external fixation of the tibia, what is the maximum extent of the knee capsular reflection from the subchondral joint line? And the choices are 1, 4 millimeters, 2, 6 millimeters, 3, 10 millimeters, 4, 14 millimeters, and 5, 20 millimeters. So intracapsular pin placement is a concern for septic arthritis. Reed and Associates and DeCoster and Associates have demonstrated that the maximum distal extent of the knee capsule is 14 millimeters from the subchondral line and occurs in the posterolateral region. The recommended placement of external fixation pins is greater than 14 millimeters from the subchondral line of the proximal tibia. So again, the correct answer to this question is 4, 14 millimeters. That's all for this question review session about glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics, as well as pediatric pelvic fractures and tibial shaft fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.